This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith and I will be your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We've got episode 248 entitled The Messiah in Psalm 40. Yes, the 40th Psalm we're going to be looking at today in order to see how its contents inspired and impacted early Christians, particularly the writers of the New Testament, in order to look at this particular Psalm and see within it various ways in which the Messiah would be understood in regard to his role, his purpose, and of course his relationship to the God of Israel. We're in this ongoing series where we're looking through the various passages of the Old Testament in order to discern messianic prophecies. It's a difficult process to do. It requires a lot of discernment and selection. But the best way to do it, I think, is to look at how early Jews and early Christians were finding references and indicators about the Messiah within these passages. That way we're not reading them messianically. We are looking at how the earliest readers were impacted by these texts and how they shaped and fashioned their understanding about the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, based on the contents of these various verses. Today we'll look at Psalm 40, which is interesting because it has a very different take on its message when it's cited in Hebrews chapter 10. So here are some questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what is the significance of Psalm 40 that led to early Christians looking to it for information about the Messiah. We'll be sure to talk about that. Second, who is the speaker in Psalm 40 and what is his relationship to the God of Israel? That's a very important point. Third, how are the themes within Psalm 40 picked up by the writer of the Gospel of John? This is very important. And lastly, why does the author of the book of Hebrews have a different version of Psalm 40 when he quotes it in regard to the sacrificial death of Jesus. More of this and more in this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Let's look at our first point today. Our first point is a close look at Psalm 40. So I'm not going to read the entirety of this psalm. I want to get just enough of a section that is going to be drawn upon by the early Christians, particularly within the Gospel of John and the book of Hebrews, but also a large enough section to really get a sense as to who is speaking and what is actually going on within the context of this passage of Scripture. Let's begin. Psalm 40, verse 1, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for Yahweh, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. 
he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in Yahweh. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Yahweh my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Yahweh, you know. That is Psalm 40, verses 1 through 9. So what can we say about the context here? We can see that this is a psalm of David. Now, psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean that David himself wrote it. A psalm of David could be a psalm dedicated to David. It could be a psalm that has been inspired by David's heroic life. It could be a psalm suggesting the sort of things that David might say. But just because a psalm says that it is a psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean that David has actually written it. And that's just based on the Hebrew phrase, Psalm of David. It's literally a psalm to David or for David within the Hebrew. The point is, it is inspired by David in some sort of sense. And the speaker here has a good relationship with Yahweh. In fact, at the beginning, we can see that Yahweh has listened to the voice of the psalmist who has waited patiently and God has inclined his ear and listened to the author and there was a rescue that had taken place. Yahweh had brought up the psalmist out of the pit of destruction and he had set his feet upon solid ground. And there is a song of praise that's now within the mouth of the psalmist, which is good because psalms are all about praise. And this is a praise to our God. It's also interesting here, the relationship between the psalmist and God is that God is the God of the psalmist. That much is clear, and yet that shouldn't have to be stated. We shouldn't have to point out that Yahweh is the God of anyone who follows Yahweh. But it's going to be very important when we see how this passage is drawn upon in the book of Hebrews, which some people point to and suggest that Hebrews has a very, very high Christology, a divine Christology, as if Jesus Christ is Yahweh himself. But the psalmist here regards God as our God in verse 3. He says that Yahweh is my God in verse 5. And he says in verse 8, O oh, my God in reference to Yahweh. So three times, Yahweh is described as the God of the speaker. There's no indication, there's no hint, there's no suggestion that the speaker is God in any sort of way, fashion, or form. That much is absolutely clear and certain. So back to the song that God has put into the mouth of the psalmist. 
is singing this praise to his God, and he is hoping that as a song of praise that is reflecting the rescue and deliverance that he has received, many are going to come to fear and trust in Yahweh. In fact, there is a blessing that is offered, a benediction, to those who make Yahweh his trust. And the contrast there, of course, is not turning towards the arrogant, nor to those who live in falsehood. And then, as the psalmist describes the various great wonders that Yahweh has performed, he indicates that there are just too many to count. But then, he talks about sacrifice, and it's this discussion of sacrifice which is going to pertain at least a portion of our discussion. So in verse 6, he says, The sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Offerings and sin offerings you have not required. So it's interesting here that the psalmist is suggesting that the ears that belong to him have been opened. Literally, they've been dug. But the sense here is that his ears have been set to the point where he can listen with the intent of obeying. God has made it so that this author is able to listen with his ears. And the listening with the intent to obey seems to be valued much higher than sacrifice, meal offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. And then the author actually does some drawing upon other passages within the Old Testament. It's one of the few times in the Old Testament that the Old Testament is going to refer to other books within that particular collection. So he, within the Psalms, is talking about the scroll of the book, which is clearly a reference to the law, the law of Moses. And he indicates in verse 8 that your law is within my heart, resulting in the proclamation of glad tidings in a public location within the great congregation. And of course, this proclamation is not going to be restrained. His lips are going to continue to praise God with this great song. So we have this interesting relationship with someone who is suggesting that his ears have been made attentive to the point to where he can listen and obey. Is it to the instructions of God, to the laws of God? We're not exactly sure, but there seems to be some sort of indication that it's drawing in that direction. But this is also meant to contrast the offerings that are mentioned. In fact, verse 6 seems to bookend the discussion of the ears having been opened with the intent of listening and obeying with the suggestion that offerings and sacrifices and sin offerings are not desired, nor are they required. And that's going to be very, very important when we look a little bit further. So we've got a psalmist here who has a good relationship with God. He regards God as his own God, and he is indicating that God has rescued him. And so we can see how 
these particular traits would have influenced early Christians when they're thinking about Jesus, who pointed people to God, who had a righteous attitude, who listened to God, who obeyed God, and of course was rescued by God when God raised Jesus from the dead. Let's move on. Let's look at our second point today, the use of Psalm 40 in the Gospel of John. Arguably, a particular passage in the Gospel of John has been influenced by Psalm 40, even though there's not an explicit citation. So in John chapter 4, Jesus had been walking with the disciples. He sent the disciples to go pick up some food, and Jesus has a long discussion with the Samaritan woman. After he reveals to the Samaritan woman that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the disciples return, and there is a discussion about food. And that's where our passage picks up. So in John chapter 4, starting in verse 32, Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's John chapter 4, verses 32 through 34. So here we have Jesus indicating that his food and his desire is to obey the will of God. And that sort of language seems to be drawing upon Psalm 40 and especially Psalm 40, verse 8, which says, I delight to do your will, O God. It's the delight of the psalmist to do the will and describe the person whose will is being accomplished as his God. And here Jesus says that his food, his nourishment, his passion is to do the will of God, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so many scholars have detected an echo of Psalm 40, verse 8, in Jesus' response to his disciples, when Jesus defines the food that fills him and nourishes him as the doing of the will of God. That's very interesting. And it also, of course, indicates that the relationship between the psalmist and the God of Israel has been maintained within the quotation. In Psalm 40, God is Yahweh, and Yahweh is the God of the psalmist. And in the Gospel of John, God is the Father, and the Father is the God of Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the Son, which makes him the Son of God. So let's move to our third and final point, which is going to be the most controversial point that we'll be looking at today, the use of Psalm 40 in the book of Hebrews. So as we read through this section, and we'll be reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10, I want you to listen to the quotation from Psalm 40 and see if you can detect some of the differences that are there. So Hebrews chapter 10, let's start in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. 
Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do the will of you, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 through 10. All right, so in the context of the author of the book of Hebrews, talking about the old covenant and the old sacrificial system and contrasting that with the death of Jesus and the offering of Jesus, particularly Jesus' body, as the new covenant, as the new sacrificial system, the author draws upon Psalm 40. But he draws upon Psalm 40 and uses it in some ways that have raised a lot of concerns and questions. The wording is different. Some of the words are very different. And how the author came to find and use these words is a very interesting question. So let's look at a couple of things first. First, we do notice that the author of the book of Hebrews regards Jesus as the speaker of Psalm 40. Now, I don't think that he thinks that Jesus was the speaker back in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't born. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says that when he comes into the world, which is a typical Jewish euphemism for being born. And Jesus, of course, was not born at the time of Psalm 40's writing. So the author is drawing upon Psalm 40, using it in a different way, and suggesting that in this new application, in its modern application, Jesus is functioning as the speaker. Even though it's quite clear that originally Psalm 40 was not about the life of Jesus. It was about somebody within the Old Testament, within the Hebrew Bible. So here, Jesus is now speaking and saying that sacrifice and offering you have not desired. So Jesus is speaking to God, because God is the one that would have expected sacrifices and offerings. So the distinction between the speaker and God, who is Yahweh, is maintained. And that God, of course, is the God of the speaker. If Psalm 40 is being used in Hebrews chapter 10 and used to suggest that Jesus is the speaker, then Jesus addresses God as, O God, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7. And of course, Jesus indicates his subordinate desire to obey the will of God. It says that in verse 7. I have come to do your will, O God. And then that passage gets repeated by the author of Hebrews in verse 9, where he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. So this is not Jesus functioning as a co-equal person to God. He is not confused as God. He has not been collapsed into the identity of God. Clearly, he is distinct from God, and he is someone who is mortal to the point where he can die. 
The suggestion here is that Jesus completely dies. It is the death of Jesus Christ, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. There's no dissecting it to say, well, part of him died, but the other part can't die because the other part is supposedly divine and immortal. The book of Hebrews is quite clear. Jesus completely and wholly died. So Jesus is immortal. He speaks about God as his God, and he indicates that he is going to obey the will of God. So the relationship between the speaker in the psalm and the God of Israel has been maintained in the book of Hebrews. Now let's talk about verse 5. This is the part that is quite interesting. So when we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, when it cites Psalm 40, it says that sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. Yet, when we go back and we look at Psalm 40, that particular passage does not say, a body you have prepared for me. It says, my ears you have pierced. Literally, my ears you have opened, my ears you have dug. So how in the world do we go from ears being pierced to a body you have prepared? Well, here are the steps that have taken place in order for that change to occur. So we begin with the original passage that in Hebrew, and it's quite clear there aren't any significant textual variants, and there aren't any words that sound similar or have similar spellings. The word for ears is not remotely similar for the word for body within Hebrew, nor is it in Greek. So what we have in the Hebrew text is, my ears you have pierced. Now the Septuagint author of Psalm 40 read the Hebrew and understood it and translated into Greek by saying, my ears you have prepared. Okay? So he has maintained the ears section there, but instead of the ears being pierced with the purpose of being opened and made attentive so that the ears of the person could result in obedience and faith, the Septuagint translator understood that as the ears have been prepared which is kind of another way of saying that the ears are prepared so that the person can listen with their ears with the intent of obeying and showing trust and belief. That is clear. Okay, so it's just another way of rendering the act of what is actually taking place to the ears. Now, we can understand that when someone's ear is attentive, they are intending to listen to where they can obey, but the obedience doesn't just apply to the ear. The ear is a small function of the whole. And so what the writer of the book of Hebrews has done is that he has looked at the Septuagint text, which says, my ears you have prepared. And he kept the reference to being prepared, but he changed the word ears to the word body. Because the body is the whole that the small piece, the small member, the ears are actually functioning as the representative. So, of course, if the ears are prepared, and the ears are representing a sense of obedience and listening and hearing, that reflects the entire body. So, the body is the fullest part 
to where the ears are just the small part representing the whole. So I think that's how the writer of the book of Hebrews would have explained what he is actually doing. But just to be clear, we can go down that logic again. In the original Hebrew text of Psalm 40, it says, My ears you have pierced. The Septuagint translator kept the reference to ears, and he said, My ears you have prepared, changing the word pierced to prepared. And the author of Hebrews was using a Septuagint translation, which says, My ears you have prepared, and the book of Hebrews has changed the word ears to a body, and he maintained the reference to being prepared. So what does it mean that a body has been prepared for Jesus? There have been many interpreters that have argued that this is a reference to incarnation. This is a reference to the pre-existent son who was in heaven, who came down to earth and entered into a body. Now, that's not really what typical incarnation theologies would actually say. It's not that one particular being came and abducted the body of another, or that some sort of body or vessel was just kind of there and someone entered into it. That's very strange. That's not the sense of a body being prepared for me. This particular body in Hebrews chapter 10 is the body that is offered. We can see that in verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. This particular body was prepared as a sacrifice. And we know that it's prepared particularly as a sacrifice because the context of its discussion is in reference to other sacrifices, which are prepared. It says in verse 5, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So while sacrifices, burnt offerings, those are typically prepared under the Old Covenant's sacrificial system, here we have another body that is prepared for sacrifice, and that is the body of Jesus. So I think the reference to a body being prepared needs to be understood in reference to the death of Jesus in sacrificial terms, not towards the birth of Jesus in which supposedly some sort of pre-existent conscious being comes down to earth and jumps inside a prepared body. That would be quite silly and strange. But it's clear that the author of Hebrews saw this particular passage in Psalm 40 to further enhance his argument that the sacrifice and death of Jesus is a once-and-for-all sacrifice that is better than the continual sacrifices that were taking place under the Old Covenant when the temple was actually standing. And so that's why Psalm 40 was attractive to him. It's a quite different reason than the way that Psalm 40 was used by the author of the Gospel of John, if indeed that, that echo, that passage was impacted in John chapter 4. Now there you have it. We have... Psalm 40, and it's reference to the psalmist who wants to do the will of God and wants to incline his ear so that he can obey God and fulfill God's will. That passage has been drawn upon, arguably, by the Gospel of John and quite clearly by the author of the book of Hebrews. 
both in reference to Jesus as the Messiah, who is obedient in doing the will of God that ultimately leads to the death of Jesus, indicating that he is a mortal who died completely and was ultimately raised back to life by Yahweh, the true God. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we continue to work through the Messianic prophecies within the Old Testament. And we're going to look at Psalm 45 next week. It'll be a very interesting passage. And there's a lot, and I mean a lot of detail within Psalm 45. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a financial donation to the podcast, please check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.